We're looking today at servant leadership. Servant leadership. And thank you, Brother Dale, for reading the text from Mark 9, 30 through to 50. Quite a few verses there. I will try to go through them as quickly as I can. In this section of Mark's gospel, Jesus keeps reminding his disciples that he's going to die by way of the cross. And if you're like me, you don't like to think or talk about suffering. As Christians, we just want to experience the glory, don't we? The joy, the love, and the peace of the Lord. But Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that he's going to die by way of a cross and that without the cross, there's no crown. So we're following this passage now and uh, just to step back into the last couple of messages, we looked at the transfiguration of Jesus on the mount and last week we looked at the healing of the demonized boy. Now Mark tells us that Jesus is passing through Galilee again on his way to Capernaum and he stresses a teaching ministry of the Lord to his disciples beginning in chapter 9 verse 30 and I will read. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. Amen. Again, we see here that Jesus is deliberately avoiding the crowds. Because he wants to make time to be with his disciples. These 12 men in particular. He's pouring his soul into them. So on his way to Capernaum. It seems as if he takes the back streets. So that he could get to his destination. And uh, speak and share with his disciples. Which he has done before in regards to the cross that he would suffer. But on this occasion he introduces a new element in regards to him going to the cross. And he says to them that the Son of Man will be betrayed. In some versions it says delivered, but really the word there is betrayed into the hands of men. So he had been mentioning this all along, that he was going to be uh, crucified, he'd be killed, he'd go go to the cross. But this time he mentions how this was going to take place. That initially he was going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Judas obviously was in the midst when he was saying this. I wonder what Judas was thinking at this time. Mark records the reaction of the disciples on him disclosing that he was going to be betrayed. They did not understand the saying and did not even ask him anything about it because they were afraid. If you notice in the scripture that Jesus never rebuked anybody for asking questions. He rebuked the disciples for not believing, for not having faith. But he never rebuked anyone for asking questions. So it's a bit puzzling why 
when Jesus mentioned that he was going to be betrayed, that nobody asked him, well, how is this going to happen? Who was, who was going to betray you? They were afraid, it seems, to ask. We do that at times. You know, sometimes we discover things, and because we don't want to find out anymore, for fear, have you ever done that? You don't bother to ask any more questions because you don't want to get too deeply involved or, or sucked in. So I think this is what was going on here with the, the disciples. They obviously heard what Jesus had said, but they were afraid and they refrained from asking any questions. Nonetheless, Jesus holds this before them and after this account will continue to say to them, I'm going to be crucified. They're going to take me and on the third day I will rise again. Even though they didn't fully understand what he meant by that at the time. So Mark goes on to reveal to us perhaps why they didn't ask any questions. Because their hearts and their thoughts were on other matters. As we will see as we read on in Mark 9 from verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. But on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Amen. Jesus, in this passage that I've just read and in the following verses, is giving a master class on servant leadership. A master class on servant leadership. And because we have this written in the scripture, we can enter into that uh, master class. Now, many of these principles that Jesus is going to share here are used by many successful businesses. You can advance to the next slide. There are just a few of them that I looked up. So people are taught these principles by their organizations or companies and they will pay facilitators hundreds and thousands of pounds to come and speak to their employees in regards to servant leadership. I'm sure you will recognize some of those companies up on the board there. So we see from this passage that they were in the house in Capernaum, more than likely it is probably the house of Peter's mother-in-law, which um, Jesus seemed to have used when he was in that region as his headquarters. And Jesus asked them, what were you discussing along the way? So he wasn't a part of the discussion, but he had an inclination to what they were discussing. They were discussing who would be the greatest. And I find that strange that Jesus is amongst them or with them 
And he is the greatest. <laughs> the scripture said that a greater than Solomon is here. Greater than the prophets. Before Abraham was, Jesus existed. So the greatest was walking with them. And here they are discussing who's going to be the greatest. And not even acknowledging that the greatest, Jesus Christ, his presence is actually with them. You know, what that said to me is that we have to be careful what we say. Because the Lord Jesus is present with us all the time. Amen? He's ever present with us. So we're not told how this argument came about. But in my mind, I'm thinking, was it because of the transfiguration that recently took place? Where Peter, James and John... Saw Jesus transfigured, and of course, Peter made the suggestion, a foolish one, let us build three tabernacles and stay upon this mountain, and let's rule the world from this mountain. Remember, Jesus strictly charged them on the way down, don't tell anybody what you saw. That could have caused those three disciples to be puffed up in pride. And arrogance, because no doubt when they came down from the mountain, I'm sure the other nine disciples must have said to them, well, what happened up there? And I can imagine going, well, we can't tell you. We know something you don't know. And Jesus has told us not to tell you. But something really fabulous happened up there, but we can't tell you. Maybe that's where this discussion came from in regards to who is the greatest. We don't know. But Jesus goes on in this master class in regards to greatness. He's going to talk about ambition and servant leadership to talk about what true greatness really is. I want to say that there's nothing wrong with the desire to be great. There's nothing wrong with the desire to achieve goals. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's the attitude and our approach to greatness that um, Jesus is going to address here. And I want to look at two types of, of greatness. Two kinds of greatness, two kinds of ways that we can have ambition. There is the ambition to be approved and applauded by men. And that's very self-centered. And then secondly, the ambition to be approved and applauded by God. And although you can see the sentence on the board may look very similar, but they are worlds apart. There's a night and day difference between seeking the approval and applause of men and seeking the approval and applause of God. To seek to be approved and applauded by men is to say, well, how many people serve me? How many people do I influence? How many people hold me in, in high esteem and, and honor? And that's not what Jesus considers to be great. Because the kingdom of God is kind of upside down to 
our natural inclinations and how this world thinks. We would probably think that, yeah, being great is having lots of people serving us, running around us, fussing around us. Whilst many people think that way, that's not greatness in the kingdom of God. In ancient China, it was fashionable for wealthy men to grow their fingernails so long that their hands were unusable for basic tasks. This was to demonstrate that they did not need to do anything for themselves. There was always a servant there to wait on them. The world may think of this as greatness, but God does not. Jesus declared that true greatness is shown not by how many serve you, but by how many you serve. So then Jesus points out what true greatness is. How many do you serve? How many are you willing to minister to? How many are you helping? This is the true mark of greatness in the kingdom of God and in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to drive this lesson home, Jesus calls a child to come to him and he puts his arm around the child. And then he says to his disciples, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I don't believe that this child was a special child, a nominated child, perhaps just a child that happened to be around in the house. So Jesus called this child to give a practical demonstration in regards to greatness. And he brings out three remarkable points which I want to go through quickly in terms of greatness. The first is found in these words, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And the important words there are, in my name. The motive for receiving such a person, a child seemingly unimportant, is that it's done unto the Lord. Done in his name. Not because... We don't do good to others because of what we are going to receive back from them. That's not the motive. We don't do good because by associating with certain people, well, they can give us uh, a lift up on the ladder of life in terms of status. We don't do good to people because they are wealthy and in turn they can do us a favor. But we do it unto the Lord. Amen? We do it in his name. So the first mark of greatness is that we learn to have no respect of person. In other words, we should learn to respect everyone, value everyone, welcome everyone. Remember when we were in the book of James, we looked at the scenario of someone coming into an assembly like this, well-dressed, and in our natural selves, we want to place that person on the front row. 
because of what we see on the outside. And if someone comes in looking a bit scruffy, perhaps we say, well, you sit on the back row. We treat people with, with favoritism. Well, that's not how we are to do good to people. Not because of the outward appearance. But we are to respect everyone. That's a mark of true greatness. When you can respect everybody, regardless of what they look like, regardless of what you may know of their past, you respect and value people. Whether that's a child, whether that's an adult, that's a mark of true greatness. So if you want to be great, if you want to be great, you've got to value and respect everybody. Amen? And then John comes out with uh, a statement here. I'm not sure why he, this came to his mind. But maybe because Jesus used that phrase, in my name. So reading from verse 38, it says, Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Amen. So John recalls this incident of seeing this other fellow who is casting out a demon in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seems as if this troubled John. Because this person, they didn't know him. He hadn't been schooled by Jesus. And what right did he have to be casting out a demon in the name of Jesus? And he wasn't a part of their church. We could look at it that way. I think John was jealous of this man personally. This is my take on it. Because if we trap back a few verses, you remember the disciples had trouble casting out the demon out of the demonized boy? They were trying their best, but they couldn't do it. And here's some total stranger who hadn't been part of the 12 disciples. And this man is having success. He's actually casting out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that must have taken some faith. Because as I explained last week, it's not by use of a formula that we exercise authority. But it's in total trust and reliance in the Lord. And God responds to that type of faith. So although this man wasn't a part of the, the, the disciples' clan, as it were, but he was having success and people were being delivered through his ministry. So Jesus said, don't forbid him. Because he's doing it in my name. Amen. You know, we can get caught up that, you know, we're New Testament Church of God. Yes, Harvest Temple. If we're not careful, we can see ourselves as the church. And we can look at what others do. We may not align perfectly with our beliefs and the way we do things, our tradition. 
And we have to be careful that we're not like John. That we say, well, those people over there, are they really saved? You know, when, when I was working as a chaplain at the Birmingham Children's Hospital, I got the role because they wanted a Pentecostal chaplain because a lot of people were saying, coming to hospital and saying, um, we're Pentecostals when they're filling the admission form. And they didn't have a Pentecostal chaplain, so I began to, to work there. And the head chaplain, you know, a really good man of God, saved, proper man of God. He told me the story that uh, there was a, a family who were Pentecostal and they, they wanted prayer. And uh, he said, okay, I'll come and pray. And he went to the bedside to pray. He's an Anglican. And they said, we don't want you to pray. We want someone who's saved. <laughs> and I share that story to say that sometimes we can look at other Christians who just do things differently as if, are they really saved? Are they serving the same God? We have to be careful that we don't reject people because of their traditions, just like some people would probably reject us. As much as we think we've got everything right, some people may look on some of the things that we do as strange. So anyone who's doing anything in the name of Jesus and having some success, they have faith in God. And they're part of God's kingdom. And also, we should not reject people on the outward appearance. Because someone comes amongst us and they don't look like us, they don't speak like us. They don't have the same cultural expressions or from the same ethnic background as us. That should not be a barrier for us to receive and welcome people amongst us. Amen. And I can tell you that is not as easy to do as to say. Because sometimes we are sort of colorblinded by our own traditions and cultures. And we don't even realize how strong that is amongst us. But we ought to go out of our way to make people feel welcome. When they come in amongst us and may not act quite like we do. Amen? And then Jesus speaks about the second mark of greatness. Reading from verse 41. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ. Assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And then we have to read on the next verse. There's a break there, but we have to read straight into the next verse. It says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a milestone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That sounds a bit drastic, doesn't it? That sounds serious. Jesus is saying here that this second mark of true greatness in his kingdom is someone who takes humanity seriously and looks at how we can help and develop and encourage others. So if there's a new believer amongst us, those who help to nurture that person will be rewarded by God. Even if you give somebody a cup of water, you will receive a reward for that. And you know, many times we, we look at ministry as standing up here somewhere, 
preaching, singing, teaching. But you know, everything we do in life is ministry. So when I pull up in the Asda car park to buy bread and chocolate animals and Kit Kat and Crunchy, I'm not going to say for who, but for someone, for somebody's lunch. Did you know that's ministry? So if you're driving along the road and someone has a puncture and you stop, if you have the skills and abilities to give them the hand to change the tire, did you know you're going to receive a reward for that? That is ministry. So everything we do for somebody else from the right motive is ministry and sometimes you don't feel you think it's every time I want to be going up the shop and doing shopping not all the time is it all the time you want to vacuum the house and wash the dishes and all those things no the person who cleaned this sanctuary ministered to everyone who's in this sanctuary today without saying a word because I'm telling you if you came in here and there was litter all over the place you wouldn't hear the last of it. So ministry is not just standing behind a lectern such as this and preaching, teaching, singing, because many of us have that picture in our, that image in our minds. Anything you do for somebody else to help them, to upbuild them, is ministry. So do it with gladness in your heart. Amen? And then Jesus goes on to say, if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and if your foot causes you to sin cut it off it is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire. And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Can you say amen to that? <laughs> wow. The third mark of greatness is those who aspire, have the ambition to be great, has to learn to judge themselves. We have to judge ourselves. On another occasion, Jesus says, First remove the beam that is in your own eye. Beam. A beam. Before you try and take the speck. Can you see how Jesus is really making this example really clear? 
How can you take a speck out someone's eye when you've got a beam in your eye? You, you can't obviously see what you're doing properly. You know that we are often intolerant of other people's sin, but we tolerate sin in our own lives. We let sin lie in our own lives, but we're quick to point the finger at other people. It says, first remove the beam that is in your eye, and then you will see clearly to help another. So Jesus is not saying you shouldn't help others, but he's saying take a good look at yourself. Judge yourself. If one has an infected arm, say, or foot that has gangrene, and the doctors feel that it's going to threaten the life of that individual. What do they normally do? They'll amputate it. Which is not a nice thing to lose a, a hand or a foot, is it? Or part of your leg. But what would you prefer? To be alive and to have a, a limb missing? Or would you prefer for that gangrene to spread all the way through your body? And eventually take your life. So what Jesus is saying here sounds very drastic. But what he's saying that if your hand, and I think hand speaks to actions, what we do. So if the things that we are, are doing are not right. If our feet, that speaks of maybe uh, the journey to the action or places that we go. And he speaks of the eye, which I, to me speaks of our imagination. And things that we imagine in our thoughts before we carry out those acts. So if we are living in sin, he says that we should cut that off. Not play with it. Not trifle with it. We have to judge ourselves and we have to cut that off. Because it's better to enter into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God with whatever that area of your life that you hold dear to you whatever that sin habit is better to enter into the kingdom of God deprived of that than to have all your limbs and end up in hell this is where the fire is not quenched the word used for hell there is Gehenna the valley of Hinnon if you've visited Jerusalem on a holy pilgrimage, you would drive past this valley many times, in and out of the city. I remember when I went. Every time we drive past, the driver telling us, there's the valley of Hinnon, <laughs> which they call hell. So you, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll, you'll have enough opportunities when you're driving into the city to look down into that valley. And that's the valley where some of the kings sacrificed their children. They were burnt. And it became a, a rubbish dump where people would just go and burn things. And it would continue, it would be a continuous flame burning there. That's a picture Jesus is drawing of hell. If we do not judge ourselves, that will be our eternal destination. A place where garbage is, is burning continuously. So we must understand then that... If you're an unbeliever in here, you have not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter how much good you do in your life. 
If you don't receive Jesus, your end will be total loss. Nothing will be able to be salvaged from your life. If you are a believer and you don't judge yourself, you will lose reward when you stand before the Lord. So Jesus said that we should salt ourselves. We should judge ourselves. We need to be harsh on ourselves. If there's sin in our lives, we need to cut that sin off. Amen? To salt is good. But if that salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves. And have peace with one another. Judge yourself. You know, it's better to judge yourself than to fall into the judgment of God. We never fall into the judgment of God without God giving us many, many opportunities. God doesn't just come down on you and just judge you like that. He gives you many, many opportunities. Every time you come to church, you hear the the word preach, you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit speaks to you in the week. He gives us many opportunities to judge ourselves and cut off sin in our lives. Well, if we don't do that, God will judge us. And that judgment will be more severe than if you take the time and opportunity to judge yourself. If we have salt and we don't use that salt to judge ourselves, it's like having salt that has no taste. We need to judge ourselves. So this word is for me. This word is for you. It's not for your neighbor for your brother or for your sister. Are we judging ourselves? Are we allowing sin to continually uh, reside in our lives, whether that be in action, whether that be in, in deed or thoughts? Or are we judging ourselves? It's a sign of true greatness when one can look at oneself and judge oneself to say, well, this isn't right in my life. And we have blind spots, don't we? Because we always think we're right and we think we're perfect and we think we're all that. But Jesus is saying, judge yourself. Examine your actions, examine your thoughts, deal with your own weaknesses and do it in a drastic way. Don't pity patter cake with sin. Cut it off. Cut it off. Better to go to heaven thinking that you may be missing out on certain pleasures or whatever, it's better to enter into heaven which is going to last for eternity than to enjoy the pleasures of sin, the scripture says, for a season. So just recapping, the three marks of greatness. We need to learn to treat everyone the same. Have no respect of face, of person. We need to take humanity seriously and be concerned for the profit of others, how we build them up. And we need to judge ourselves. Judge ourselves. I'm reminding of the story of David and Nathan. 
the prophet Nathan, when he came to David and said, you know, this man stole another man's sheep. And David was ready to take the speck out of that man's eye when he had a beam in his. When David had killed a human being. You see how we think? That illustrates how we think and that it's not so easy to judge ourselves as we think. 1 Corinthians 11, 31-32 says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. I want us to spend a few moments of reflection and just allow God by his spirit to search our hearts, search your heart. We know ourselves well enough, I believe. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's not fool ourselves. If there are things in our lives that don't honor God, we need to judge ourselves and we need to cut those things off. And I, th- I think Jesus uses this example of being so drastic because sometimes we have to take such drastic action. You know, so for instance, if you're an alcoholic and you want to be free from that, you don't say to yourself, well, I'll only have two a week then. Because that's going to just draw you right back to that place, isn't it? Of dependency on alcohol. So what would you do in that case? Cut it off. That means don't pick up the bottle in the supermarket and even put it in the trolley. Cut it off. There may be some amongst us who are involved in promiscuous living. Cut it off. Flee the very appearance of evil. Amen. Are you receiving this? It's meant to save you. Not for you to leave here feeling condemned. Whatever those habits are, whatever those sins are, I want us to pledge today to cut those things off completely. Not to trifle with them. Not to lessen them. Cut them off completely. Amen. Can we just bow our heads and just reflect on this word? Lord, will you just speak into our lives? I know you've sent this word to save souls that otherwise would be lost. There's not one of us in here who can hold our hand up and and say that we don't need to judge ourselves. Every one of us needs to judge ourselves. Lord, Help us to aspire to true greatness by respecting others. Not judging people because of faith, O Lord. Taking people seriously and judging ourselves. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, any who may be bound by sin habits in this place today, Lord, they will take the appropriate action to cut that off, to remove it out of their lives, O God. And today they will be free 
In the name of Jesus. Let your judgment come upon us. In Jesus name.